0: If you picked today as the first time to come or the first time you're here in a while, you picked a great weekend to be here uh, because we are launching a brand new series today in the book of Exodus. And our account today begins with the promise of hope, with a great promise of hope, but it ends in a completely different place. And maybe that's uh, your story today as you're joining us. Uh, Maybe you graduated college, you you thought a great career was ahead of you, but it's been a few years now, and like now all you have is a pile of debt and a room in your parents' basement, and you're just wondering like, when am I ever going to escape this, uh, this place I'm in right now? Or maybe, um, maybe you had a great opportunity that turned sour. Anybody had one of those? Let's see a show of hands. Like business opportunity, career thing you thought was going to be great. And it just it launched good, but then it turned sour. And some way, somewhere along the way, you found yourself disillusioned. You found it actually sucking the life out of you. I bet most of us have had a job or, or, or an experience like that in life at some point. I remember, uh, right, I, I went off to missions work. And as, as soon as I came back shortly after high school, I had, I had this uh, summer job lined up. And there's this great church up in uh, Wyoming by the Tetons, this great spot up there. And uh, I thought, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to plug in, kind of do an internship with them. And then there's this guy that was going to give me a job doing landscaping work. And I thought, I could go learn how to do landscaping. I I like, you know, working with my hands and doing stuff outdoors. And so I went up, I took this job, and I started. And and instead of turning into, you know, I thought, this pastor is going to spend all this time with me. I don't know why I thought that, but that's what I thought, right? And uh, there was not a lot of time at that point, right? And then this job that I started just began to suck the life out of me. The people I worked with, the whole, the whole thing, I, um, it was like, uh, right? And I still remember the feeling when I finally said, the summer is ending, and I get to quit this job. <laughs> Anybody had a job like that? Yeah, you have, haven't you? And, uh, and so... You know, maybe you're in a place like that right now in a season of life, or maybe you were on track for a career that was really on your heart, um, but now you're a stay-at-home parent, and it feels like your whole life just revolves around changing diapers. You're wondering if you're ever going to get to these things that you're passionate about. In fact, what you're really more concerned about right now, honestly, is if you're ever going to sleep through the night again. Anybody? Yeah, I remember those days. And I'm not going to tell you how long it took our kids because that wouldn't be encouraging. So if that is your story, any one of those kind of things today, you're in good company because that's where we find the people of God at the beginning of one of the greatest accounts ever told, and that is... Exodus. And so we're going to launch into this book today. It's going to take us quite a while to work through it, but we're going to break it up into a little mini-series of about 6 to 12, 10 or 12 weeks, and then we'll pause in between and do some other things. But as we launch this, let me just say, Exodus, if you're wondering, like, why would we, Exodus is a 3,500-year-old text, or 3,000, 3, years old. Why would we take time and go through a 3,500-year-old text? You know, why not 10 weeks on marriage or anxiety and getting out of debt? And, and, and the truth is, this is why we're doing it, is Exodus is all about God. It's, it's all about the time and the place when God begins to clearly reveal his nature and his character and his heart to humanity. And we get glimpses of it before this, um, but it really begins to become clear in Exodus. And so as you go through this, what I'd like to challenge you with is how might it affect your life, your, your fear, your anxiety, the way you do your finances? How might, how might it affect all these areas of life if you could really learn to trust that God sees you and knows you? We're going to discover that. That God actually is interested in your joy, that he desires your joy, and that God keeps his promises, And not just that, um, the amazing thing about the book of Exodus is it has had an incredible influence on the course of history and how we understand justice, how we understand human rights. And even uh, atheist scholars would acknowledge that Exodus has shaped history. It's influenced incredible people like Wilberforce, who was one of the key individuals in England that abolished slavery a couple hundred years ago. Uh, It influenced Franklin and Jefferson, some of our founding fathers, and their understanding of justice and liberty and resisting tyranny. It was huge in that. In fact, very fitting we're starting this weekend because Martin Luther King Jr., of all the biblical stories that Martin Luther King Jr. harnessed to inspire his followers, none of them were more significant in the Exodus narrative. In fact, I want you to see if you can help me out here this morning by uh, one of the most famous lines that Martin Luther King Jr. said. And let's see if you remember it. Ready? Uh, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Nobody helped me, so now you're going to all have to participate. <laughs> so one time, with enthusiasm, fitting for the weekend, um, Let's say that line, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty I'm free at last. And I was inspired by this account in Exodus. And so, the Exodus account begins like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. And then if you're anything like me, when you're reading through the Bible... Um, oftentimes what you do after a statement like this is you read it like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob and each his family. Names, 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 names. Skip. Anybody else? And here's the thing. There's something very significant going on here. And in these first few verses of Exodus that so many of us just skim over and like, let's get to the good part. Um, Let's get to Moses, right? That's where the whole story sort of kicks into gear. Let's just sort of skim through this first chapter. And that's oftentimes what happens. But there's something incredibly significant going on here. The Hebrew actually starts with not just a statement, but the word and. And these are the names. And and why does it start with the word and? It's because it's the second part in a five-part volume that tells the story of God launching his plan of redemption. And, and here's the thing. If you don't understand what the and is about and what comes before this, it's going to be very hard to, to understand um, the whole arc of the story. Let me say it like this. I know uh, the last Star Wars just came out, right? Anybody see it? Yeah? Was it good? Should I bring my 10-year-old to it? Yeah? Okay. Thanks. He's begging, so I was just wondering. Um, so we haven't we haven't gone yet, but here's the thing: I know about it because my son has watched a bunch of the Star Wars, and he's really into the storyline, and he knows all about it. And now there's this whole new weird like thing on Disney Plus that um, I, it's like Baby Yoda. <laughs> What's with Baby Yoda? In fact, my 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 kids are so obsessed with this Baby Yoda that they cut the head of the angels on our Christmas cookies. And made baby Yoda cookies, which I'm not sure about theologically, but we'll just, you know, <laughs> we'll let them have their fun. So anyway, the, the weird thing is, like, my son tries to explain to me what's going on in Star Wars, but honestly, you know, ever since the first three, which is so confusing because it wasn't actually the first three, right? Like, they come out in the late, start coming out in the late '70s, and then the next. The first one actually comes out in the late 90s and now. It's so confusing unless you're a real nerd and you know how it's all working. And so you got to understand some of the backstory of the Torah, or these first five books of the Bible, in order to understand this story and the significance of what we just read and what we're going to read here in a second. Before, so before we launch into the Exodus account, I want to set up the background and the narrative arc of this Amazing account you see Exodus like I just said is the is part two of the first five book section of the Hebrew Scriptures or our Old Testament which is known as the Torah. Can everybody say that? The Torah it means the teaching or the, or the law, and it's an ancient text. Uh, these five books, uh, but they're revolutionary in ancient times when it came to understanding God and understanding how to relate to our fellow man. In fact, I've got a quote for you from a from a Jewish scholar that's really interesting. Uh, here's what's so amazing about the Torah. He says this: the Torah is so utterly different, morally, theologically, and in terms of wisdom, from anything else preceding it, and for that matter, from anything written since that a reasonable person would have to conclude either moral superman or God was responsible for it. And here's, here's what you see. 3,500 years ago, the world was a very different place. The way they viewed God or really the gods as just these powers and forces. They, they had to appease somehow, and, and sometimes you'd have to bring a, a vast amount of your, your crops, which would lead you into famine, or sometimes you would have to actually sacrifice your children on the fire in order to somehow appease the gods because you didn't understand the forces of nature and all these things. It's a very different world. Children, women, pretty much just property at that time? A very different world that the, that the Torah is written to. And so in this time, this amazing revelation of the nature and character of God is given that it was so far ahead of its time, it's just mind-boggling. So much so that much of our justice system has been based on it. Even now, 3,500 years later, it's advanced, right? And so to understand this, as we begin Exodus, you need to understand both the narrative arc of the story. uh, So I'm going to go through some events real quick. That's what the whiteboard is for. And so the first thing you need to understand is creation. And right at the beginning of Genesis, what we see is this, this incredible idea that God, who is not within nature, as so many cultures believe, but outside of nature, beyond, from nothing, created everything that exists, So um, scientists have searched for this over the years, and the the only conclusion they came to is a big bang somehow. Um, Well, this would have been a big bang, a booming voice of God, actually, who spoke everything into existence from nothing. Creation. Creation. And what we discover from God right in the first couple chapters of Genesis is that God is a good God who creates a good world, a perfect creation, the, the garden, and places man into it. His desire is to bless mankind, to have fellowship with humans. We discover a God who loves and who wants to be loved. We discover the, the concept and the idea, this is so far ahead of its time, of one true God. This is what, we, what the Torah teaches us as it develops over the first five books of the Bible. One true God. One true creator God. And it led us to the understanding of, that we have a father in heaven and that humankind are actually brothers and sisters. And you, you, we discover such things as universal human worth. Because every human being right at the beginning we see is created in what? The image of God placed here to steward this creation. And that means humankind has intrinsic worth, not just attributed worth, not just because somebody's important, but because God created us, we have intrinsic worth. That's where the concept of, of the value and the sanctity of human life came from right here. And also it means that there are universal human rights. We see that first developed in the Torah. So the first thing is creation. The second thing, I'm going to give it an F minus. And for all you like high school or young people in the room that maybe grew up with a participation trophy, um, <laughs> that means fail, okay? I know they don't grade that way anymore, but that, that, that means fail. And we're going to call this, this is the fall. And right away, it only takes a couple pages of your Bible uh, to get into this tragic event in the course of history. In order to be a God who is loved truly, in order to love, you have to have a choice, right? Otherwise, you're just a robot. And so God gave humankind a choice to either steward this world well and, and, and choose to live in obedience and fellowship with him or, or to rebel if they should choose. And so we see this, this character, the serpent, entering who, who, as Scripture develops, we discover is actually the deceiver, the accuser, one known as Satan, that tempts and deceives humankind into believing that being made in the image of God and stewarding his creation is not enough. Instead, they need to be like God. They can be God, essentially, is the lie. And so humankind falls... Humankind rebels. Humans choose to make much of themselves instead of much of God. Sin, shame, violence enter the picture. But even in the midst of this tragic story, so close to the beauty of the beginning of the story, you see this amazing thing about God, that he is a God with grace because he comes and, and he kills a lamb and he, and he covers their nakedness with, with the skins. And he gives the promise. There's this little cool promise, prophetic promise right in the beginning of Genesis, or the end of Genesis 3, of a coming victor who will crush the head of the serpent once and for all, but in the process will receive a fatal blow to the heel, that he will crush the battle he will dominate. This cool little prophetic sign of Jesus. And so in the Torah, the first five books, we find out he is a gracious and compassionate God. He's gracious and compassionate, and that is good because what you discover about God and, and as it translates about masculinity is that compassion is not weakness. That mercy is not weakness, which was, was thought of 3,500 years ago. That compassion and mercy are part of the heart of God. And in a world dominated by men and where cruelty and might made right, right at the very beginning, in the first five books of the Bible, you have this example. That true masculinity is compassionate, and merciful. The other thing we find from this is God is a just God. He's both gracious and He's just. And what this meant is he just can't you know wink at sin, no. Instead, there has to be a payment, there's a penalty for sin because of God's justice. And so right at the very beginning, we see that an animal had to be killed in order to cover the shame and the nakedness. And this is a theme we'll see developed throughout the book of Exodus. In fact, one of the most beautiful pictures of what Jesus did for us on the cross is found a few chapters into Exodus in the first Passover, And here's the thing about God. Since God is a God of justice, that means that justice will prevail, which is a big deal. But we don't always see it in this life. But we know, and what's developed in Scripture is we know that justice will ultimately prevail. And the other thing you see is that the sense of justice in humankind. Have you noticed you have this sense of justice? And there's things that just tick you off. If you have kids, when one of them does something lousy to the other, it ticks you off, right? Or especially if you have kids and somebody else does something lousy to one of your kids, that really ticks you off, right? Maybe it's, you know, on the, on the baseball field and somebody trips them or purposely, you know, throws the ball at them and you're like, right? You're like, the kid's only seven, but I'm going to take him out. Right, You have this innate sense of justice, don't you? This innate sense of morality. And because of the justice sense that you have, um, what you discover in the Torah around this event, the fall, we have a conscience. We know we have this sense of what's right and wrong. But it also gives us the ability to question and wonder, like, what's going on? In fact... Because of this innate sense of justice, um, a lot of people actually, in reading the first five books of the Bible, because they read it and don't understand the culture it was written to, and so many things that we read seem so archaic, they make the conclusion that God is actually cruel and unjust. Have you heard that argument? Beyond just atheists arguing against the existence of God, which, man, is a crazy leap of faith when it comes to origins, that you know, you want to believe that everything just came from nothing? That's a leap of faith. Is believing in God faith? Absolutely. So is believing that everything came from nothing. To me, that's even a larger step of faith, right? But beyond that, one of the big arguments is somehow that God is an unjust God. And when you go back and you see the first part of the Old Testament, somehow God is unjust. Somehow God did things that weren't right. God is cruel. God is mean-spirited. And then you get to the New Testament and you have this other sort of idea of God like now becoming kind and loving And it's one of the arguments, but here's what you discover as you go through that, that so many of these passages are ripped out of context and they're ripped out of their historical context and used to accuse God. Let me share one example because it's kind of a fun one. One example is in Exodus, we may come to this a little later. This may be in one of the sections we skim past. But there's this idea that uh, if your son is rebellious and you try to correct him and discipline him and they don't listen to you, Exodus says, take your son out to the elders of the city and tell him what you did and then stone him. Now, incidentally, we have no record this was ever carried out in, in uh, Hebrew culture. But here's, if people look at that and go, that's so archaic. That's so repressive. But here's what you have to understand in the culture. You have to understand that 3,500 years ago, um, like I said, wives and children were just property. And so up to this time, if your kid ticked you off, you could just kill him. And so right during this time in history, God moves in that situation. And and he says, no, while maintaining parental authority and giving parents something to threaten their kids with, because that's really helpful, isn't it? You've had kids, right? You felt like this, haven't you? You've had times where you're so frustrated, you're like, there's this scripture in Exodus. <laughs> While maintaining parental authority, he actually, it's a, it's a huge advancement in human rights and liberty because you can't just kill your kid. They're not your property. They're a person made in the image of God, and so there's due process even in that. Um, just one example. So God, at the fall, we see God is just. And so, I'm going to... Blaze through the rest of this here so we can get on to the rest of this text. So you have the flood next. Those are raindrops, not very good ones. And the flood where humankind has descended into such depths of violence and wickedness that God says, I want to bless humanity, but we're going to have to start over from this one righteous person, Noah. And so that's what happens. And then the next big scene is Babel. And this is a tower, a ziggurat, which is what Tower of Babel was, which was a a temple that they would use to worship false idols that weren't really God. And humanity comes together. And again, after the flood, God says, "I want you to go, be fruitful, multiply, fill this earth. Be humanity again, like I created you to be." Humanity said, "No." Instead, we're going to come together and we're going to build a tower to the heavens and again, we're going to become like God. And so God comes down, he confuses the language, disperses the nations, which leads us in the very next chapter, which is very significant and we'll do some more on this at some other point. God says, okay, I want to bless humanity and all these other nations have gone their own way and followed all these false idols. I'm going to let them do that for a period of time. And I'm gonna start again and launch my plan for blessing humanity and the redemption of humanity through one man and his name. And I'm gonna draw a dude here with a big beard because I'm sure his beard was epic. Abe. You know him as Abraham, Abe. One of the most famous gentlemen ever to live. And there's a reason for that. Because to this guy who was old, whose who, wife was barren, he, they, they couldn't have children, God made this outlandish promise. In Genesis 12, 1, it says this, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Everybody read this part together. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, the narrative art, God's heart to bless the people of the, of the world. Ridiculous at the time based on Abraham's life situation. But God promises it. He promises it. And Abraham ends up having sons. And I'll just leave the one guy with a beard because I'm sure they all have beards, okay? Uh, and one of those sons is named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob, whose name becomes Israel. The good news, first of all, when it comes to these, this family line that God chooses to be the source of blessing to the world, the good news is we think God picks us because we're good or we're well-qualified or any of that. You think your family was, was dysfunctional? This, this family, let me just tell you. I, I mean, Jerry Springer, right? <laughs> Jacob... He's got four wives, um, two, and it's this, you know, he's, there's deception, there's all this stuff. He's got a favorite wife, Rachel. Uh, first of all, Jacob deceives his brother to steal the birthright. And yet this is the guy that God chooses to become Israel, um, to be the father of the nation, you know, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In fact, God will reveal himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These guys are patriarchs, but they're not considered righteous because they got all their stuff together because their lives are perfect. They're considered righteous because they trust and believe God. And that'll be a theme that develops through here um, significantly. But God chooses broken, fallen people to accomplish his work, and that is good news for us. Because however dysfunctional your family is, I guarantee you, Jacob's way worse, right? That brings us to the next uh, guy. Actually, a quick note about Jacob. It's really cool. Israel, the name Israel, uh, comes because he wrestles with the angel of God all night long in this this one account. And so his name is changed to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And as we go through this series, we're going to wrestle with some hard things about God. We're not going to avoid some of these hard questions about God, hard concepts about God. In fact, if you're here and you're in a place where you're wrestling with the season in your life that God's allowed you to be in, you're in a good place. This this church is a place where you can wrestle with God and, what God, why are you allowing these things in my life? Where you can wrestle with the hard questions, where you can search and ask questions. That's welcomed here. So Jacob ends up having 12 sons, like I said, four wives, and the son of his favorite wife, which when you have to say that, something's messed up, right? The son of his favorite wife is a guy probably you've all heard of too. His name's Joseph. And Joseph, through a whole series of events, very famous story, he lands, his brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. They hate him because he's the favorite son of the favorite wife of their father. They hate him. He's sold into slavery in Egypt as a teenager by his brothers. And through a long series of events, he ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt because God allows him to interpret Pharaoh's dream And so when this great famine comes, because Joseph knows ahead of time there will be seven years of plenty and seven lean years, the nation of Egypt has stored vast quantities of grain. Joseph is responsible for the nation of Egypt becoming just massively wealthy and successful. And at this point, there's a famine in the land and the rest of his family, his dad thought he was dead. That's what the brothers told him come down to Egypt and are shocked to discover that the one who has their life in their hands is their brother who they sold into slavery. And in that moment, Joseph says something very significant. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, God had a plan through all this. It ain't been fun. But looking back now, I can see that God had a plan for all of this. And he had a purpose behind it. And so the family now, about 70 people, number 70 people, they moved down to Egypt to escape this famine. And Pharaoh, who is so thankful for what Joseph has done, he saved the nation, right? Pharaoh gives them the best part of the land, a part of the land called Goshen. I have a little map I'll show you. In the fertile Nile Delta, this is where most of the beginning of the story takes place, in this land called Goshen. They're given the best part of the land. They're given favor. And God is doing something very significant. And so now, 400 years go by. That's a long time. 400 years ago is uh, about Plymouth Rock for the U.S. Seems like a real long time. It was a long time. And during this time, circumstances change considerably. But when we launch in, now you understand, when we launch into the and these are the names, now you understand why that's so significant. Because God is actually moving here. Here's what's happened. Let's just read through it. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob each with his family, Reuben, Simon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So these 70 come down now into Egypt, the place where they will be saved and rescued from the famine. And here's what it says next. And, and this is where, what you miss. If you don't know all that, and I know that was a lot of uh, sort of narrative of, of scripture, but here's what, here's what you miss. It says this, now Joseph and all his brothers and that, and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, this is epic, and this is the part you fly over and you miss because you're trying to get to Moses and all the stories. But God had made a promise 400 years before this, actually probably closer to 500 years before this, to Abraham that his people, that this one man would become a vast nation. Abraham dies, and all he knows is he's he's got a kid. He's got one son of promise, Isaac, I don't know how this promise is going to work out. And so the epic part when it says, and here's what happened. The epic part is God is stepping in and he's keeping his promises. What God promises, he keeps. It's amazing. In fact, there's these echoes back again. You remember to the blessing that God wanted humanity to be to the world. And here is this new nation that he's beginning and says, and they were fruitful and multiplied. That's God's intention. God is moving to fulfill his promise. It's happening. It's epic. It's amazing, except 400 years later, their circumstance isn't so epic. And this is what we're gonna see as we go through this. And I've got three thoughts in the remaining time we have left today. The first one is this. Maybe God knows something you don't. Maybe God knows something you don't. Um, I, lo- I love the way another pastor that I respect engages with this idea. He had a 13-year-old daughter at the time and a, uh, a seven-year-old, the, the other sibling was seven. And he would trick the 13-year-old because when you're 13, you, you kind of know everything, right? Get a pick on you if you're 13 in the room. So, um, He would ask the 13-year-old, do you think you're smarter than your seven-year-old sibling? And the daughter would go, Duh. <laughs> Right? Of course I'm smarter. And then uh, she was trapped. Because then he said, well, you think maybe your your 30-something-year-old or 40-year-old father knows something you don't? And, of course, the teenager uh, just sulked off at that point. Didn't answer the question, right? But here's the point when it comes to you and I. Do you think maybe the eternal God of the universe who created a universe so vast we can't even measure it, knows something that you or I don't know. And when you find yourself in a season of life where you're wondering, where is God at? Why is this in my life? Why is this happening? Do you think maybe there's something that God knows that you don't know? Or when you run across hard passages of scripture, which we're gonna encounter some of these in this book, where you're like, God, how, how can you be kind and just and that be true? Do you think there's maybe something that God knows that you don't know? It's a good thing to think of. I was in, uh, I had a season in my life where I, um, I really was passionate. I wanted to go to Africa as a missionary. In fact, God clearly led me in this really profound, cool way that I was gonna go to Africa, that I was supposed to go. And so I was, meet, get, I, literally on the day I was gonna meet downtown with this missionary from Africa, this guy from Uganda. Um, we had a meeting set up, a lunch meeting. I was gonna go down. We were gonna make plans for how I was gonna go back to Africa with him. That morning, I got a phone call from this guy that I met when I was with YWAM, and he had asked me to join his ministry two years before this. And I just wasn't at a point. I was like, "No, nah, I don't think so." And so he said, "Maybe in a couple of years." I said, "Yeah, maybe in a couple of years I'll come join your ministry." And so, almost two years to the day, this guy calls me back and goes, "Hey, it's been a couple of years." Out of the blue, and I'm like, "It has." And I just knew in that minute, when he invited me then again to come join his ministry, I just knew that's what I was supposed to do. It was so weird with this whole Africa thing. So I went to lunch with a guy from Africa, and I said, I'm going to go to Fiji. So I booked a one-way ticket that same week and went and joined this ministry in Fiji. And I got to Fiji, and it was one of the hardest seasons of my life. I struggled with depression and loneliness like I've never have in my life. And I didn't know, God, why did you bring me here? Why did you bring me here? And, you know, to this day, I only have two things. And one of them is interesting because during that time in Fiji, I had one of those God moments. There's those strategic moments in life where God shows up in your life. I had this incredible moment where God broke two cars in a row. And I just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt in my mind, I've told this story before, I won't take the time, but it was a God moment where I knew that God had stepped in and moved in my exact situation to keep me there in Fiji. And that's one moment I look back and I go, wow, I can have no doubt about God because in my life, I know that there's no good explanation for that. Right? Some of you have had those God moments like that. They don't happen that frequently, typically. The other thing was, after I got back from, from Fiji, um, sometime later I discovered that this missionary who I was prepared and ready to go serve with in Africa was actually a crook. He was an embezzler. He had a wife in Africa and a wife in the U.S. Bad news. Bad news. And I don't know what God saved me from. But looking back, I know he saved me from something. Maybe God knows something you don't know when it comes to your current situation. Scripture goes on, see, and here's where their story and this epic fulfillment of the story goes from bad to worse. It's this. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so, They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses, as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly." Not so epic anymore, is it? Now, get this. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. It's amazing. God is fulfilling this. You get this in the first six verses, and then the next verse, the shoe drops, and you find out. But it's so strange the way he's fulfilling his promise. It's so strange. And here's the second thought I have for you is this, that maybe God is keeping his promises, but you don't understand how. How? at this point. God surprises us. The way that I've felt as I look back at my life, the way that God has, uh, when God's led me, the way it ends up working itself out, although I can clearly see his hand and like, yep, that was God, it's very rarely the way I had thought it would work out ahead of time. Almost never, if ever. God surprises us. And usually you can't see the way God was moving in this situation until you're looking Back at it. Maybe you have a situation in your life. Maybe the thing you're going through right now, you're in this place where God's fulfilling his promises or God's um, moving in your life and yet you don't understand how yet. You don't understand how yet. But see, this is an interesting thing because God had actually predicted this. Back in Genesis, and we're not going to read the scripture, but back in Genesis, one of the things he told to Abraham was, your people are going to go, and they're going to be slaves for 400 years in Egypt, and then I'll bring them back to this great land. And there's this cryptic little thing at the end of it that says, because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fullness. It's like, what? What? And you get this picture where God says, I'm going to bring you out in order to grow you, to bring you back in. And and here's the thing. For Israel, Egypt actually became the incubator of a nation. You see, if God would have left this small little group of brothers and their wives and kids and the grandkids in Canaan, they would have just simply been assimilated into the culture's right around them, the cultures that were foreign idol God-worshipping cultures. In fact, you read some of the drama in Genesis leading up to it, and you see, yep, that's exactly what would have happened, because there's some crazy stories. They would have ceased to be any unique individual identity. They just would have assimilated and become part of the Amorites and the Canaanites and all these peoples as they intermarried with them. And the promise of God to, to raise up a great nation from Abraham would not have come into fruition. But God brings them down to a place that begins his blessing, but becomes very, very difficult. And he's doing something in the meantime. You see, Egypt at the time in history, Egypt was the one nation on earth that believed they had a unique, pure bloodline and they would not intermarry with anyone. And beyond that, uh, the Israelites were shepherds. They detested shepherds. That's why they stuck them up in this beautiful Fertile corner of the you know of their country it wasn't a high population center let's just stick them out over here kind of by themselves, but you shepherds, cuties that's how they had it so. God, in the meantime, over 400 years, God sticks them in this place where they're isolated from other cultures where they can't intermarry because nobody would intermarry with them. And before you know it, they multiply and now they're a nation. Conservative estimates are when they come out, um, well, we see there's 600,000 men plus women and children. We're talking a couple of million people, which lines up with what we know now about birth rates and stuff. So that's completely plausible. So God sticks them in a place where in the... In the midst of this harsh labor, they cannot see it. They don't know what's going on. They've forgotten this promise that God said, we're going to bring you here and you're going to be in slavery. They have no anticipation that after 400 years, even though the time is right now, God's getting ready to move on our behalf. They've forgotten that. We like to forget the not so nice aspects of promises in our lives, don't we? Uh, We forget this promise from Jesus sometimes that he said in this world you will have trouble but take heart I have overcome the world I mean there's lots of promises we like to hang on to and those are beautiful we should but he also promised life isn't going to be easy that we're going to go through things in life that we don't understand that are going to be hard And so let me just say, maybe God is keeping his promises, but you just don't understand it at this point. In fact, sometimes, sometimes the comfort, sometimes the understanding doesn't come on this side of life. And yes, you find fulfillment and joy and peace now, and God allows us to experience some beautiful things, but sometimes the promise is fulfilled in eternity. That is the ultimate promise. That's what gave... Paul, the ability to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. That I can go through any circumstance, hardship, anything, because I'm living for Jesus and that's what it's all about. I'm gonna invite Winston up. I have the third thing I want you just to consider as we close today is this, that maybe God has you where he has you to grow you. See, God had Israel Um, where he had them to grow them into who he promised, even though the circumstance they found themselves in was very difficult. And sometimes God allows you to go through seasons where you don't get it, you don't know. It's like, God, I thought you were saying this, but I don't see how this is coming to pass. God, it's so hard, so difficult right now. God, it's so stretching right now. Maybe God has you where you are to grow you. You know, God gave us the vision. Actually, as I was thinking about it, God, when we were thinking about planning a church, I had an idea to plan a church when I was 19. I had this book. I read it. And I remember telling my friend up in in Oregon, I'm going to move up there and we can plan a church. So I moved up there and I got a uh, construction job and it rained in Oregon. And I lasted two weeks (laughs) and I was back to Colorado. And here's the thing, if I had started that then, there was no way that God had emotionally, um, spiritually, educationally prepared me for for doing that, right? And so I went through a lot of different things. In fact, God spoke to us clearly about church planting five years before we ever got to it. And some of you are in that season right now of just waiting like, God, will the stuff that, that I feel you've led me towards these, this, this feeling inside that I feel like, God, I have this potential and yet it's just going nowhere. God, I have this heart to be in this area. Lord, I wanna, I'm single and I just have this heart to be married. Is it ever gonna happen? You gotta trust God's working in your life. Even though sometimes we don't get the answers. He's working. So I want to invite you to stand. And Winston's going to just play a little bit of this course that we, we sang a little earlier. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. See, the hope that we have, the ultimate hope, is that we have been given a way to be children, to be sons and daughters of the one true living God that we have the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And his good purpose for you is that you would know him, that you would love him, that you would spend eternity with him. And so let's just um, bow our heads, close our eyes. And if anyone in the room, you've not given your life to him, I wanna give you the opportunity to do that. You could do that simply by praying a simple prayer that says, Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. But just like you moved... Thousands of years ago, in your grace, you came at the cross and died for me. I believe you rose again. I wanna give my life to you, Lord. Welcome me into your family. And for the rest of us, I just want you to wrestle with these three thoughts as we close. Maybe God knows something you don't. Maybe God is keeping his promises, but you don't understand how yet. Or maybe God has you where he has you to grow you. And if you have something that you've been wrestling with God with, I want to invite you just to give it back to him. So Lord, Lord, as we launch this series into this amazing, amazing text that you preserved for us for all these years, Lord, we want to thank you that our story is that you brought us out of darkness into the light of your life, Lord. That that you gave us the ability to become your sons and daughters. Through the blood of Jesus, we worship you. We lift up your name. We say thank you here today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.